and we are so dependent upon you. What you have done for us is is absolutely astounding, so much so that, that we would give our lives for the sake of the gospel. At least I pray that we would. I pray that you would give us the strength, you would give us the faith to be that kind of follower, that kind of disciple. Lord, as we are in today's passage, and we see the failings of Peter, I pray that you would pierce our hearts. I pray that you would excite us to be true witnesses, to take your gospel and to share it, to speak, to open our mouths and not in silence deny our Savior. Be with me this morning as I am speaking and keep me from error and open our ears to hear. We commit the time to you and need you for this to mean anything. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So why don't you turn over to Mark chapter 14. We're looking at verses 53 through 72 in Mark 14. As you're turning there, I just want to say that it was one year ago today that our U-Haul pulled up in the driveway over at the Parsonage on the 29th. So we've been here a year. And we've seen... Yay. Thanks, Dave. Well, thanks, but I didn't expect that. (laughs) Um, But yeah, we've just... We've loved this past year. We've we've had some challenging times and some really joyful times, but, but we have really come to love Emmanuel, and we feel loved by you all as well. Um... So a year, we'll see what the next year brings, in the next ten. But our passage today from Mark, we've been going through Mark for just about that entire year, um, and now we are in the last hours of Jesus' life. It's probably, at, when we get to our passage, it's probably really, really early on Friday morning. Most people would be sleeping at this point. The sun is still a few hours from rising. It's dark and there is an emergency council that is held to finally deal with the problem of Jesus. Now this passage is another one of Mark's sandwiches. He's been employing the sandwich technique a lot throughout the the whole book of his, Uh, but in chapter 14, this is the third sandwich that we come to, the third Markan sandwich. So it's a He frequently employs this technique. It has an A-B-A structure. So A means one thing and B means another thing. And you put the sandwich together and you have a third meaning. Really, the purpose of why he is writing is the purpose of the sandwich, the meaning of the sandwich. So I want you to see first today that this trial that Jesus is in, (laughs) is the victim of, is a complete sham And it's full of ironies, tragic ironies. Secondly, I want you to see that to truly bear witness about Jesus, to be a true witness, means that you will suffer. They go hand in hand. All right, let me read the passage this morning, Mark 14, verses 53 to 72. And they led Jesus to the high priest... And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony they did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, 
Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders said to him, said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. You know, it's iconic, isn't it, this whole scene? Peter in the courtyard warming his hands by a fire. There's guards and people milling around, and he's getting accused of knowing Jesus, and he denies it. Meanwhile, Jesus is before this council, bound, looking humbled and sad. It says the council is made up of the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. So we know this already. We've seen this group of people before. This is the Sanhedrin. This is the highest religious authority in the Jewish world. And they have been opposed to Jesus ever since he emerged into ministry three and a half years earlier. But in the book of Mark, this is Jesus' first interaction with the high priest. They come face to face. The highest authority of the religious world versus the highest authority of the created world. And he's brought bound. He's probably been softened up by a few blows on the way from Gethsemane. And he's already condemned in the eyes of the religious leaders. But that, that's just context to set up part A of our sandwich. Because part A, the way that this story opens, it's really about Peter. Look at verse 54 again. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. So there's two things we should immediately notice about Peter. The first is that he's still following Jesus. The guards showed up, the mob showed up to arrest him in Gethsemane, and everybody fled. They all left him. After saying they wouldn't leave him, they left him. But Peter hasn't totally left. He's still following. Something in him still wants to be near Jesus. And the second thing you should notice, and this is the biggest, is that Peter follows at a distance. Every single gospel says that. He follows at a distance. It's critically important to note that he follows at a distance. It foreshadows what's about to come. It sets up the entirety of this sandwich. Remember Peter's boast from just a few hours earlier, as they're walking to Gethsemane, Peter says these words, and look back at verse 31 in chapter 14 to see it. He says, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. That's just a few hours old. Peter thought he was so strong. Peter thought he was so faithful. And Peter's strength is about to be proven as utter weakness. The cost of following Jesus 
has just been abandoned for safety. He will only get as close as safety allows. And he further, and he risks something. He risks danger. He risks ridicule. He might even get arrested or who knows. So he stays at a distance. Hidden. And he hides himself in the courtyard of the high priest. Now that detail, the courtyard of the high priest, of the high priest villa, that enlightens this scene quite a bit. It gives us a ton of context for what's going on. So he hides in this courtyard. This is unique because the Sanhedrin, they would normally be meeting in the chamber of hewn stone, which is in the temple. And I have an image of the temple here. I hope. Yes, there's the chamber of hewn stone. And here's the temple. So this right here is the chamber of hewn stone, and there's a second level to it. That's where the Sanhedrin would have met. But instead, this night, they are not convening there. They are convening in the villa of the high priest. So this is far away from the temple, actually. Uh, I have another image here, a map. Right there is the villa of the high priest, at least as far as tradition dictates. So there's the temple. And there's the house where they are. So you can see they're far from the temple. They're meeting in this private home. And in doing this, they are violating, the Sanhedrin are violating all kinds of their own laws. So, gathering in the wee hours of the morning, breaking rules. You know, one rule is that the Sanhedrin was not allowed to meet on the Sabbath or on a festival day. It's Passover. They're breaking the law not to meet on Passover. Capital punishment cases like this one with Jesus require two different sittings. Each sitting, each sitting is on a different day, and each time it's during the daytime. They're violating both of those. There's one sitting, and it's happening in the middle of the night. Everything they are doing is to expedite this process, to get it done, to get Jesus dealt with, Because they view him as an enemy of the state, a problem for all of Judaism, and so they want him gone. The ends justify the means. They will break their own laws in order to condemn Jesus, to bring him to death. And we come to part B of our sandwich in this mock trial. They're even breaking the very nature of what a court testimony is. Look at verses 55 and 56 again. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. So according to Moses' law, the law from Numbers Uh, chapter 35, verse 30, and and other places, it's required that you have two witnesses, at least two witnesses that would agree on a matter to, to bring allegation, to solidify allegations, to validate claims made in court. But here in this case, they cannot agree. Any witnesses put forward, they cannot agree. And so what we have is at least one false witness, if not a whole host of false witnesses, because everything that they bring against Jesus cannot be substantiated. They contradict They don't make sense. They're false witnesses. Look at the charge they bring against Jesus, starting in 57. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about their testimony, they did not agree. So this charge that they're bringing up, there's a number of things going on with this accusation. Now, first, you need to know that Jesus does actually say it. He does say this, and if you look at John 2.19, you see it. Jesus says, I will destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So it's a real claim. This is a true testimony against Jesus. 
and it would have been a major offense because as we know, as we've been talking about, the temple was the center of Jewish identity. It was a place to come and worship God. It was a place to come and have a sacrifice made for your sins. So everything about Judaism centers around the temple. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to destroy that. And in three days, I will raise it up. But whatever is happening in that court, they just can't seem to get this story straight. They either aren't saying it correctly or they're not understanding the meaning or the implications of what Jesus is saying about the temple. And so if we look at Acts 6-4, we get a possible contradiction. And so this is right before Stephen is stoned to death. And this is one of the reasons they cite for killing Stephen. So they say in Acts 6-14, For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs of Moses delivered to us. So you see how that's a little bit different from what we found in Mark or from what Jesus said in John. So they're, they've got their stories confused. But as we saw in the last chapter, in chapter 13, Jesus would indeed come and destroy the temple in judgment. Destruction of the temple in 70 AD. When the temple falls, it is Jesus in judgment destroying it by the hands of the Romans. And if that's confusing, then I encourage you to go back and listen to that series from, from Mark 13. But even more profoundly than that, more profoundly than the temple being destroyed, is that when in three days, or rather that very day, when Jesus is crucified, what happens in the temple? The curtain is torn in two. The the curtain that separates the common from the holy. Inside is the holy of holies, where God dwells, where he is most manifest on the face of the planet. In that place, the veil is removed from it. The barrier is removed so that anyone could enter, anyone could see in, anyone could access it. And when Jesus dies, the, t- the curtain is torn in two. And so God is effectively rendering the temple useless at Jesus' death. And in three days' time, when Jesus rises, he rises as the temple of God. He rises as a place where God is most manifest He rises as the center of worship. He rises as God. If you want to approach God, do not go to a temple. Go to Christ. If you want to know God, you don't need rituals and sacrifices. You need the person of Jesus Christ. Now, parentheses. If I forget to close it, Russ, you'll remind me. So there's this little prophetic nugget that's stored away in the book of 2 Samuel, and it's massively significant to what Jesus is saying here, to to Jesus' claims about destroying the temple. It's It's a nugget about who would build a temple for God. So 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 14, I'll read it for you. I will raise, God is speaking to David, King David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So after King David died, his son Solomon builds the first temple and the prophecy is fulfilled, right? Yes, in part. But the truer, greater reality and fulfillment of this prophecy comes with Jesus, the son of David. And we've heard him called the son of David in Mark. He is the son of David who builds the temple eternally and establishes a kingdom eternally. So what is said to David in 2 Samuel comes true in Jesus at his death and resurrection. And these People in the Sanhedrin have no idea. Jesus is the permanent fulfillment. And I'll close that parenthesis. But in a court seeking a way to 
justify executing Jesus. They don't care about this. The prophecy is not enough. Jesus' words about the temple are not enough. They need something concrete, something that they can legitimately say, for this Jesus, you shall die. And the high priest has had enough of these false witness shenanigans. Look at verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. So the, the high priest stands up to silence everybody. False witnesses, stop. He commands the attention of the room. He demands the floor. And he cannot believe that Jesus is saying nothing. How can he not defend himself? How can he not have anything to say? In a, in a court system like this, Jesus would have been, abs- in, in their eyes, he would have been absolutely ignorant for not trying to defend himself. But Jesus stays silent because Jesus knows that whatever he says is going to be used against him. Silence is not ignorance. Silence is a proof of his innocence. He has done none of these things. He need not even defend himself. And silence is a proof of his innocence. Just as the prophet Isaiah prophesied some 600 years before, in Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Prophecy fulfilled. Jesus is the pure and innocent Lamb of God, slaughtered for the sins of others, completely silent before those that would condemn him, not making a defense. This is the definition of meekness. I don't have this in here, but this is what meekness is. Jesus has the authority and the power to call 10,000 legions of angels down on the Sanhedrin and annihilate them. And in his meekness, instead, he stays silent. He accepts it. And with the next question, though, from the high priest, Jesus does break his silence. The high priest, on his, vo- on his feet, with his voice raised, summoning all the authority that he can muster in that room, asks the real question. Verse 61. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? In the Greek, that's not how you read it, though. The question is implied. In the Greek, this is a statement. The statement would, the high priest says, you are the Christ, the son of the blessed. It's a statement used as a question. But for the Jews, the name of God was so holy that they dare not utter it. So instead of saying son of God, he says son of blessed in order to not say God. Because that name was so holy. So effectively, what the high priest is saying when he stands up and looks at Jesus, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. You may have missed that. But this is the first full revelation of Jesus Christ in the book of Mark. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now we've heard these elements before, right? Peter confessed Jesus as the Messiah in chapter 8. The demons have called him the Son of God, but nobody has put them together, not until this high priest, not until this hateful, spiteful, determined to kill Jesus high priest. You are the Christ, the Son of God. And this is pure irony. 
Every time that Jesus, or rather, every time that somebody understood Jesus' identity, even partially, Jesus commands them to silence in the book of Mark. He, t- he said, don't tell anybody. Stay silent about it. But he doesn't do it this time. Something's changed this time. Because Jesus answers in verse 62. Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So Jesus' silence, his hiddenness, his secret is over. And he answers, he's fully revealed. And he fully affirms what that high priest has just said. And the way that he does it is with the name of God. I am. Yahweh. Ego emi. He uses the Greek language to say I am. And Jesus is not stopping there. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now here Jesus is referencing two different Old Testament passages and we're going to look at them. The first is from the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament, which is Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Sit at my right hand. The place reserved for the Son of God. Jesus is saying, that is my seat. Ironically, it's through the actions of this murderous council that will get Jesus killed and that will deem him worthy of this seat. That's an aside. And Jesus affirms being the Son of God to the high priest, to this council, but look at how he refers to himself in in verse 62. You will see the Son of Man, not the Son of God. So he's still referring to himself as the Son of Man. It's his favorite title for himself. Why? Daniel chapter 7. I'll read this passage to you. This is amazing, this passage, and it's true of our Jesus Daniel seeing this vision, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all the people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." The Son of Man. Jesus is the one like a Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days. This whole scene is happening in heaven where Jesus is coming on clouds of glory and power and authority to receive His kingdom eternally from the Father. And He's saying, Jesus is saying, that's me. I am the Son of Man. He comes on the clouds in heaven to receive his kingdom. This man who's bound, all people will serve him. With these words, Jesus says in the most unambiguous terms, crystal clear, that he is the Son of God. He equates himself with God to such a degree that the Sanhedrin, this unbelieving Sanhedrin, hears blasphemy. Verses 63 and 64. The high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. He equates himself to God. These religious leaders, they see an ordinary man, delusional, bound, humble, not a threat, not now. 
speaking blasphemies. But I need you to notice something. Listen. This court could not condemn Jesus. Their testimonies would not hold up. They had no evidence against him. What does it? Jesus gives this mock counsel everything that they need to kill him. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what the consequences are. And he walks into it by equating himself with God. Jesus is the only one who had the authority to hand himself over to death. And he does it. He does this because, in part, he has his church in view. He has us in view. He does it because he knows that through his death and through his resurrection, we can have life and we can be redeemed and we can be forgiven. We can be made right with God. And Jesus knows this. He sees this. And so he gives them what they need to make it all come to pass. Jesus has the authority not this court of men. And that's another ironic feature of this story. And then they begin to mock him. In verse 65, some began to spit on him, to cover his face and strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards receive him with blows. Isaiah chapter 50 verse 6 begins to, to find its fulfillment. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. So it's with disgust, it's with, with anger, it's with hatred and arrogance that they spit into the face of the one who created them. the one who was about to die for them. This great wickedness, theirs is the greater wickedness, not the one that they are calling a criminal. And there's another irony. Let's, let's dive into these ironies. There are well, five ironies that I have listed here that are tragic, that are sad, that show this whole thing to be a sham, First, the Sanhedrin looks to condemn Jesus according to their laws, but they break their laws in order to condemn him. Meanwhile, Jesus is the only one upholding the law. As I said already, the evidence for Jesus' condemnation comes not from the mouths of the testimonies against him, but it comes from the mouth of Jesus. Jesus faces the judgment of the Sanhedrin, but it's the Sanhedrin who will ultimately be judged by him. They mock Jesus' ability to prophesy, but the prophetic words that he just uttered would find their fulfillment in their lifetime. Finally, most profoundly, it's the high priest who blasphemes The high priest calls the one who is God a criminal deserving death. This is the ultimate blasphemy. You know, wisdom and justice are supposed to pervade the court systems, right? Well, this wisdom that they're trying to exercise is absolute foolishness as they're condemning the Son of God for blasphemy. And their justice is a sham as they break their own laws to try to kill Jesus. There is no justice and there is no wisdom. And then, a shift of gears and we return to part A of the sandwich. Back to Peter in the courtyard. 
Look at verses 66 through 68 again. And Peter, and as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. So there's this formal trial happening upstairs with Jesus. But in the courtyard, there's another trial, a trial of a different kind happening with, with Peter. You know, Peter wants to stay hidden. He doesn't want attention. And suddenly he's thrust into the center of attention in this courtyard. Everybody's eyes are on him, and he denies Jesus. He denies knowing Jesus in two different ways. First, he denies knowledge about Jesus. I don't even know who this guy is. And secondly, he denies having known Jesus. He denies the experience of Jesus. He denies his relationship with Jesus. So he's denying knowledge of Jesus and the experience of Jesus. It's complete denial. And then, and then he changes his location to get away, to get out of the center of attention, to try to avoid this accusation. He gets away. He goes to the gate. And what happens is that there's more distance between him and Jesus. He separated himself from Jesus even further. Peter's sins drive him further from Jesus. And he denies it again. In verse 69, And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And a little while the bystanders again said to him, Peter said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Two more times. Notice every time, Jesus, or Peter can't even bring himself to say the name of Jesus. It's this man. He can't even say his name. Each denial, there's more people. Each denial, he gets more excited, more explosive in his denial. And on the third denial, Peter explodes with curses and swearing, I do not know this man. And I can't even say what would have followed. He could not have been more complete and more emphatic in his denial of Jesus Christ. Not once was Peter asked about his faith. Not once was, was he asked about if he believed in Jesus. He just asked if he knew the guy. Yeah, that had implications, but... He denies it utterly, and then the rooster crows for the second time. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. And it all sinks in. Jesus' words, Jesus' kindness, Jesus. And Peter utterly falls apart and he weeps thought he was so courageous. He thought he would die with Jesus rather than deny. But that's when he was safe. 
It was easy to say that when he was safe. When the trial came for Peter, there was only fear and weakness. Peter thought he knew who he was, but he wasn't. This is important for us. He thought he knew who he was, but he wasn't. You know, what a contrast we have here. Jesus, in the upper room, right, right there, finally is fully revealed, and he bears witness to it, and he faces execution for it. And Peter faces a little ridicule, and he can't even bring himself to say the name of Jesus. He can't even bring himself to suffer just a little bit. And here we come colliding into the main point of the sandwich. It's in light of this contrast that we can understand what this Markan sandwich means If we want to be a true witness for Jesus, then know that you are heading into suffering. Prepare for it. So it could be ridicule. You could lose your job. Maybe some family members might abandon you or disown you. Some places you might even lose your life. For a true witness of who Jesus is. See, these things go hand in hand. Bearing witness about the true identity of Jesus and suffering. That's what this means. That's what this passage that we just read means. And here's the rub for us. It is really easy to be courageous on Sunday morning. It is really easy to say that you will not deny Jesus while you're comfortable. We can say that we would give everything for the, the sake of Jesus, but when your reputation is threatened or when your comforts are threatened or your safety is threatened, maybe you can't even bring yourself to say the name of Jesus. Test yourself. I don't know where you are. Test yourself. Do your coworkers know that you're a Christian? Do your neighbors know what Jesus has done for you? What about that contentious family member? I know that When I arrived a year ago, there was a lot of hope that with my presence, these seats would all be filled up. And I've got my role to fulfill, but so have you. Open your mouth and speak. I think it can start like this. You strike up a conversation with somebody and they're struggling. There's something real going on in their life. And not out of you making them a project or trying to make a convert out of them. You just genuinely caring for their situation. You say, can I pray for you? Can I pray with you? Share what Christ has done in your life and how you know joy. Share that joy with them. Articulate the gospel and what he has done for you. You know, Nowhere in this Bible will you find anything like all you need to do is live kindly and joyfully and lovingly. Those are important for sure. But this gospel is news. It's good news. It must be spoken. It's a real thing that happened to you that can be articulated. 
It's full of concepts, real truths that need to be articulated, and we know it, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So we need to speak and open our mouths about this gospel. Do not be the light of the world on Sunday and go dark on Monday. And now look, I, I recognize that we all struggle with this. I recognize, I recognize that there are real fears. Maybe we're not going to be killed, but, but certainly our reputations are going to be tarnished. And for some of us, truly, we could lose our jobs. What is the greater treasure? It is a struggle, and we will fail, and I have failed. But I'm really, really glad that Peter's story doesn't end here in chapter 14. Three times Peter fails to stay awake and pray against temptation. Three times Peter denies Christ. And then after the cross, after Jesus raises from the grave and defeats death back on the shores of Galilee, Peter is redeemed. Three times the resurrected Christ asks Peter, Do you love me? And three times Peter says, yes. And each time, Peter is redeemed, is restored. Peter's the chief apostle, right? Upon this rock, I will build my church. But look how far he fell. Further than probably any of us will fall. Hopefully. What a disgrace in that moment. But Jesus wanted this rock to build his church on because he wanted what was weak and what was cowardly and what was sinful so that he could make him strong, so that he could make him holy, so that he could make him courageous, so that Christ would get the glory and not Peter. Romans 5.20 says, Uh, This applies so well to Peter's situation. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And in about 30 years, after this, Peter would stand in the courts of Nero and he would be asked, Do you know this Jesus of Nazareth? And Peter was not afraid that time. Peter would not deny that time. And Peter was mocked and he was beaten and he was crucified. Just like his Savior. Yes, Peter was redeemed and he indeed did share in the sufferings of his Christ, the Son of God. The power of grace at work in Peter shattered the sinful fears that held him silent in the villa of the high priest. So however we have failed as witnesses, perhaps it's time to look at all of our our silent denials of Jesus. And maybe we should weep. Because the fear of losing our job or the fear of having a tarnished reputation or whatever else has kept us silent. So let's turn from our fears and seek the grace of Christ. Let us look to what He has done for us and follow Him. Let Him redeem us. Let Him make make me strong. Let Him open my mouth. And lavish His grace upon us. Because Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, in this moment submits Himself to this mock trial. He allows it to happen. He doesn't defend Himself. He goes to the cross for the sake of humanity. And is mercilessly and brutally slaughtered. And through this willing sacrifice that he endures, we are forgiven. When he rose from the grave, 
he purchases and secures eternal life. If you treasure that, if you treasure that gospel, to everybody who has the spirit of grace working powerfully in your hearts, be a true witness for Jesus Christ, no matter the cost. No matter the cost. And together, as we are true witnesses for Christ, this place will fill. Not that that's our greatest priority, but it's a consequence of being a true witness for Jesus Christ. A wonderful consequence. The gospel we're reading it come to light. We're reading it happen. It was a real, it's a real, this is real history. It was a real story. Christ did this for you and for me. And if you believe in it, you have an experience where Christ has changed your life, filled your heart with joy. Because you are one of the redeemed now, one of the eternal ones, one of the elect, one of the chosen, one of God's sons or daughters because of what Christ has done for you. And now he has implanted his Holy Spirit within you. What a great treasure. And the things of this world that could harm you or hurt you are nothing in comparison. Open your mouth. Let us all open our mouths. Let us find ways where we can go places and open our mouths and be active about it. Pray with me. It is humbling to look at your word. And you have pierced my heart, Father. And I feel convicted. And I feel encouraged and excited. And I pray that this effect would be true for all of us. Oh God, would you use us? Would you wipe out our fears and fill us with your courage and passion? We long to be true witnesses for you. You have done for us what we could never repay. But we can offer you our voices. Use them. We pray these, these things because of the blood of Jesus Christ and in his name. Amen.